The time is now. Volume 5, episode 102, this is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. So much to talk about, so much to talk about. I feel like I say that every episode, but this time I really mean it. I'm going to give you a little bit of an update on the OSHA ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standard. Going to talk about state mandate prohibitions and safety plan requirements. The EEOC just offered a vaccine update, and we're going to talk about sex addiction. Yes, you heard me right. So let's start with the most controversial and the most salacious OSHA. In my last episode on September 12th, which was, for those keeping score at home, Volume 5, Episode 101, I talked about President Biden's new directive that OSHA issue an emergency temporary standard. That was on September 9th, 2021. Here we are on October 18th, 2021, and the ETS has still not been issued. We are getting closer, though. Last week came word that OSHA sent a draft of its ETS on vaccines and testing to the White House's Office of Management and Budget, OMB. Still no timetable, but we're trying to read some of the tea leaves to get a sense of when we can expect it. So, for example, this past June, OSHA came up with its ETS only for healthcare workers, and when it sent that draft ETS to the White House office, it took more than six weeks for that ETS to be issued. We think that it's going to be a little bit quicker this time, probably more days than weeks. However, continuing with the tea leaves, OSHA just announced last week that it was scheduling listening sessions with various groups and business organizations, which means that they're either preparing now for comments very quickly for when the ETS is issued, or that may mean that the ETS is not going to be issued as quickly as we think. Lo and behold, it seems like the last listening session that OSHA has scheduled is for tomorrow, October 19th, 2021. So that might be an indication, if there are no other listening sessions scheduled on OSHA's website, that might be an indication that we will see something soon. I still believe we are talking more days than we are weeks, uh, but we'll see what happens. What will be in that ETS? Again, nothing new there. Uh, It will likely contain a requirement that employers of 100 or more employees either require vaccines or require testing, either weekly or biweekly. There will likely be something in there dealing with paid time off to get testing. 
and there'll probably be some uh, issue addressed dealing with the payment, who pays for it. We think that in order to maximize the number of employees who get vaccinated, we think that OSHA will put the burden on employers. But we'll see. We will also see likely challenges, and very quickly, Arizona's Attorney General Mark Burnovich already filed a lawsuit challenging the mandate, and the ETS hasn't even come out yet. The same kind of challenges that I talked about back on September 12th, in order to issue an ETS, there has to be some grave danger, and the ETS has to be necessary to address that grave danger. But again, what are the likely challenges? Is there still a grave danger here in October 2021? And if there is, why then seemingly was there not a sufficient enough grave danger in June when the last ETS came out and it didn't apply to all industries across the board, only the healthcare industry? Is it necessary to address the grave danger? Well, the ETS is not going to be making the vaccine more available to employees. So one question will be, how is the ETS needed to protect workers or increase the number of workers who are getting vaccinated? And what authority, what jurisdiction does OSHA have to arrive at this 100 number? Is there a grave danger for Companies that have 102 employees, but no such grave danger exists if you only have 98 employees. We will see what happens. Again, I'm expecting the ETS to be issued in days rather than weeks. So employers, particularly those who will be covered or would be covered because they've got 100 or more employees, start to prepare yourself, start to figure out what you're going to do in terms of a mandate if you have not already implemented some sort of mandatory vaccine policy. Also prepare, if you have not already, for accommodation requests to come in. If you have not already implemented a mandatory vaccine policy, prepare for the rush of accommodation requests. And if you have already implemented a policy, Continue to stay prepared. Make sure you have the appropriate protocols in place to deal with accommodation requests on the basis of disability or uh, sincerely held religious beliefs and practices. Make sure you are engaging in the correct and appropriate analysis, the interactive process that you need to be engaging in, and make sure that your decisions on either the disability or the religious-based accommodation requests are at a minimum consistently applied throughout your organization. It's also going to be interesting to continue to watch lawsuits continue to get filed on mandatory vaccine policies. Not just the lawsuits that we expect to happen when the ETS is issued, but we have already seen around the country various lawsuits attacking this notion of employers mandating vaccines. For the most part, courts have uniformly rejected challenges to mandatory vaccine policies themselves. Where it gets a little funky is when either a private employer or state or local governments have not allowed for certain exemptions like a religious-based exemption. And that's where many of these cases are turning. The question being, can you have a mandatory vaccine without allowing for religious or disability-based exemptions. But again, as I said, uniformly, 
courts have been rejecting challenges outright to this notion of can employers mandate vaccines as a general matter. Continue to watch and we will continue to report. Let's go from the federal level down to the state and local issue because as I have been saying and as many people have been saying, it's not just about the federal programs, it's not just about OSHA or the EEOC or federal law here. The state governments, the local governments around the country are getting into this business. Montana was the first state back on May 7th, 2021, and doesn't that seem like years ago? They were the first state to make vaccination status a protected class, prohibiting employers from implementing any kind of policy that differentiates based on vaccination status and further prohibits employers in Montana from requiring that employees disclose their vaccination status. Other state and local governments have tried to do this either by executive order or by legislation. Texas is the most recent one to act on this. Texas, the governor, Governor Greg Abbott, just issued a two-page executive order last week prohibiting employers from mandating vaccines if, yes, if there is a religious-based or a disability-based exemption request, but also if somebody objects for, quote, any reason of personal conscience, any, end quote. Well, that about seems to swallow the rule. So you don't need, in Texas, a medical accommodation request. You don't need a religious-based accommodation request. If you object to getting vaccinated for any reason of your own personal conscience, the governor in Texas has issued an executive order saying you cannot be required to be vaccinated. The term personal conscience is, of course, not defined in the executive order. Presumably, it's broad enough to simply allow employees to refuse to be vaccinated for any reason whatsoever. They're anti-vaxxer. They've got a moral or a philosophical or an ethical basis for their objection. It's the kind of broad-based objection that is not recognized by federal law or the EEOC, but it is now recognized in the state of Texas, at least for the moment. It is likely that the governor in Texas will provide some further clarification, but it is also likely that we are going to see lawsuits come up in Texas. Some other things that are not clear, and is there anything better than listening to a lawyer's podcast and all he does is tell you what's not clear? But it's also not clear whether the OSHA ETS, going back to that, will preempt the Texas executive order And what do you do if you are one of those federal contractors who must enforce a vaccine mandate without such broad exemptions, and you must do so by early December? Continue to listen to the podcast. Keep your eyes and your ears open because we do expect, again, not only the OSHA ETS to be coming soon, but we do expect to see some further guidance on this Texas executive order. Let's stay local and come back up to the Northeast. Lots of questions about New York's first-of-its-kind HERO Act. 
So let's talk about where we are right up to date, right up till now, October 18th, 2021. For those of you who have New York operations or you have New York-based employees or you just want to continue to stay abreast of what these trend-setting states are doing around the country. Well, as you all know by now, May 5th, 2021 saw the New York HERO Act get signed into law. July 6, 2021, the New York State Department of Labor published model standards, not only for general industries, but also 11 industry-specific model plans designed to prevent airborne infectious diseases when the New York State Commissioner of Health designates a particular disease as an airborne infectious disease subject to the New York HERO Act. August 5th, 2021 was the deadline for New York employers to adopt either the general template or one of the industry-specific templates for an airborne infectious disease exposure plan, but nothing had to have been done yet. You just had to implement it if you were a New York employer or an employer with New York-based employees. It wasn't until some disease was designated that you actually had to implement that plan. Well, that did happen. It happened on September 4th, 2021, which triggered all kinds of requirements, including that employers had to distribute and otherwise put into effect their airborne infectious disease plan. That designation was set to expire on September 30th, and just a few days after that, in retroactive fashion, New York State extended its designation to October 31st, 2021. How appropriate on Halloween. But so between now and October 31st, 2021, there is still a designation of COVID-19 as an airborne infectious disease that is subject to and is triggering the requirements of the New York HERO Act uh, obligations. There are all kinds of frequently asked questions that the New York State Department of Labor has tried to answer. What businesses specifically are covered by the New York HERO Act? That act does cover all non-governmental industries across New York and work sites. It also, as a matter of fact, covers uh, all employees within New York State Unless that employee or unless a particular employee is telecommuting or working remotely from a site at which the company does not have the ability to exercise control. What does that mean? If the employee is remote working from his or her home and it is not an employer purchased or an employer owned residence, then those employees are not covered by the New York HERO Act safety plan requirements. If, however, the employees are working remotely in a location that is controlled by the company, then they still will be covered by the HERO Act requirements, even though they may not be in their regular physical office or in the company's headquarters. Independent contractors are covered. So employers are required to have an airborne infectious disease plan in place for all work locations over which they have an ability to exercise control. And that would include any work site where you have independent contractors 
in there performing any kind of work. What do you have to do, at least between now and October 31st, and I will be a little bit surprised if the designation is not further extended past October 31st, but as we sit here for the next two weeks, what do you have to do if you are a covered employer now that COVID-19 continues to be a designated airborne infectious disease? Well, as the New York State Department of Labor has directed, there are several things. You must provide a verbal review of your safety plan with your employer, or with your employees, I'm sorry, as well as to each new hire that comes into the organization during the period of this designation. What is meant by a verbal review? It does not have to be in person, but it does have to be a verbal review. I believe they meant to say oral review because the Department of Labor talks about it being either by audio conference or by video conference. It is basically a review going through the particular plan that you have established with your employees. Again, it does not have to be in person, but it has to be in a manner that is most suitable to get your employees to understand of the existence and of the primary elements of your safety plan. You also need to provide each one of your employees with a copy of your exposure prevention plan. It has to be in English or if there is another primary language utilized by your employees, it has to be provided in that language. Your safety plan also has to be posted at the work site so that it's accessible to employees during all work shifts. And if you have an employee handbook, it has to be added to that as well. Obviously, like most labor and employment legislation, there is an anti-retaliation provision in there such that you as a company cannot take adverse employment action against any worker for activities that are protected under the HERO Act. There are also pretty stringent enforcement mechanisms so that employers might be exposed to daily penalties of $50 as well as violations ranging up to $10,000 for failure to abide by the requirements of the plan. It's not clear whether those penalties are per violation, per employee, or something else. So that's the first part. That's dealing with the safety plan issue. And the news here, for purposes of your takeaway, is that the designation had been extended from September 30th to October 31st. So at least until then, and again, I believe the designation will be extended again past Halloween, you are required to implement the safety plan that you had been previously required to adopt. But there is a part two to the New York HERO Act, and that is the establishment of a safety committee. That as of November 1st, 2021, all employers with 10 or more employees must permit workers in New York to establish and administer a joint labor management workplace safety committee. Two things that I want to mention here. Number one, it does not appear that that obligation becoming effective on November 1st is tied at all to the designation of COVID-19 as uh, an airborne infectious disease. Regardless of that, it seems, there still is this part two obligation to permit the establishment of a safety committee beginning on November 1st. The other interesting thing is it 
is not requiring companies to establish this committee. What it is requiring is that employers permit their workers to establish and administer a joint labor management workplace safety committee. The purpose of the committee is for the employees to help with modifications to the safety plan as such modifications become necessary or appropriate, as well as to raise and help address safety and health concerns. But again, the word permit is what's critical here, not require. So one of the open questions, I think, is what happens if you have no employees who want to be a part of the committee? Well, you are not necessarily obligated to force that on your workplace. You just have to permit it, which presumably requires that they be told that they uh, are permitted to begin this committee. But you're not required to do anything more beyond permit the creation of the Joint Labor Management Workplace Safety Committee. We anticipate that the New York State Department of Labor will issue regulations or frequently answered questions on this specific part two sometime in the next two weeks before the November 1st effective date. Let's move to the EEOC. We haven't really heard from them uh, in some time. As you know, they have created uh, guidance on their website, eeoc.gov, and specifically on the issue of vaccinations and mandatory vaccine policies, it's section K, section K for kangaroo, in their COVID-19 guidance. Well, the section K on vaccines was originally issued back on December 16th of 2020, And it has been updated a few times for particular issues and questions since then. It has been updated again just last week on October 13th, 2021. And the primary updates have to do with employer incentives that employees uh, should get vaccinated. There are still a good number of employers who are not implementing mandatory vaccine policies. For those who still want to try to incentivize rather than mandate vaccines, the EEOC on October 13 updated a few of its questions in Section K to address this issue. So question K-16, does the ADA, the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act, limit the value of the incentive that employers may offer to employees for voluntarily receiving a COVID-19 vaccination from a healthcare provider that is not affiliated with the employer. For example, maybe it's the employee's personal physician, maybe it's a pharmacy or public health department. The answer to that question says the EEOC is no. The ADA, according to the EEOC, does not limit the incentives that an employer may offer to encourage employees to voluntarily receive a COVID-19 vaccination if, if the vaccine is not being administered by the employer or the employer's agent. The flip side, question K-17, are there limits under the ADA on the value of the incentive that employers may offer to employees for voluntarily receiving a COVID-19 vaccination if the vaccination is administered by the employer or its agent? And the answer to that 
Ged shouted out. The answer to that is yes. Why else would I be highlighting this? When it is the employer or the employer's agent who administers a COVID-19 vaccine, there is a limit on the value of the incentive that the employer is offering. What is that limit? Well, the value of the incentive, and that includes the EEOC notes, both rewards and penalties, the value of the incentive cannot be so substantial that it is coercive. Why? As the EEOC explains, since vaccinations require that employees answer pre-vaccination screening questions that are disability related, an incentive that is too large could make employees feel as if they are pressured to disclose protected medical information to their employers or their agents. So to summarize this EEOC update, when it comes to incentivizing employees to voluntarily get vaccinated, if you are incentivizing them to get vaccinated by a provider that has no affiliation with your company, it is not being administered. The vaccine is not being administered by the employer or the employer's agent. Then there is no limit on the incentives being offered. So says the EEOC. However, if the vaccine is being administered by the employer or the employer's agent, then yes, there is a limit and you have to analyze the particular situation to make sure that the value of the incentive both the reward or the penalty, whichever way you are uh, dealing with the policy, the value of the incentive cannot be so substantial as to be coercive. That is the update from the EEOC as of October 13th, 2021. Finally, we go back to the state of Texas for a final non-COVID-19 segment that I like to call, wait, what? So for today's episode, our Wait What segment deals with sex addiction and whether it can be considered a disability. I'm not going to bore you right now with all of the legal definitions of what is a disability, what is not a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act or even Texas state law. We can save that for another episode. I know you just want the answer uh, to the particular question. The case, for those of you who are keeping score at home, is Manson versus Carrington International Corporation. The case was filed in federal court in the Eastern District of Texas. The plaintiff here is apparently a director of IT operations who sued her employer, which is a dental services provider, claiming that the company discriminated against her and failed to accommodate her diagnosis of love and or sex addiction. Again, her diagnosis of love and or sex addiction. A plaintiff uh, here worked on a team that needed to correct a website outage that the company suffered, and the plaintiff believed that she and her team did just that, did correct the website outage. Three days later, she took a personal day to attend Uh, an emergency counseling session, which resulted in her diagnosis of having a love and or sex addiction. She then told her boss about the diagnosis when she returned to work the next day, and lo and behold, she was fired hours after that. The stated reason for the firing had to do with the prior customer website outage. 
Hmm. So this plaintiff sued under the Americans with Disabilities Act, alleging that love and or sex addiction was a disability, and further, that the company fired her and did not accommodate her disability. The federal judge in the Eastern District of Texas dismissed the suit on a pre-answer motion to dismiss on the ground that Congress and every other court addressing this issue have refused to recognize sex addiction as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. The judge also noted that here the plaintiff never actually requested any sort of accommodation for her alleged sex addiction anyway, so that claim was handled fairly readily. The judge in the case did explain that even though the Americans with Disabilities Act defines the term disability broadly, it does have specific exclusions for sexual behavior disorders, so as not to cover sexual behavior disorders as a disability under the ADA. In its decision, the court wrote, quote, Plaintiff contends that a sexual behavior disorder is marked by behaviors such as viewing any sexually explicit conduct content or touching oneself or another person in a sexual way. However, plaintiff points to no authority supporting this distinction. The plain text of the statute similarly supports no such distinction. The ADA does not limit sexual behavior disorders to conditions that manifest through behaviors such as a need for physical contact or viewing sexually explicit material. End quote. So the answer to the question, at least for this latest judge who had to address the issue, is that love and or sex addiction is not a disability for purposes of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Says one anonymous observer, a contrary ruling in Texas likely would have opened the floodgates of litigation if that was now an accepted protected class. Hmm. Well, that is all, but that is a lot. I hope this was informative. In just 30 minutes, we gave you all kinds of updates from OSHA to the EEOC to the state and local levels to well, a new non-COVID disability discrimination case. I hope this was helpful to you. I hope you, your colleagues, and your families stay safe and healthy and, of course, happy. And as always, until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive. <laughs>